0: Hi, friends. Before we start today's story, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who's left a review for True Crime on Apple Podcasts, or for those of you who shouted us out on social media. Your reviews not only help other people find the show, which for an independent podcast is really, really helpful, but they also provide really useful feedback that I consider when I'm writing new episodes. Believe it or not, me and my team actually read every single review, and we love incorporating your thoughts. Here's a review we loved recently from reviewer Podcaster 17 I'm loving this new podcast, Everyone Should Listen. I appreciate how Slecia has really brought to life and humanized real people in her work. I'm learning along the way about myself, about our quote-unquote justice system, and so much about the important things that are so often left out of the narrative. Thank you so much for your review, Podcaster17. It means a lot to have your support. And for those of you who haven't left a review yet, please, please do. Um, We'd love to know what you think. And of course, as always, before I jump into today's story, I want to give you a content warning. Please be aware that today's episode contains references to sexual assault. While I was writing and researching for today's episode, another story I'd heard once kept coming to mind. It takes place in a state I've never been to, Kentucky, in a year I didn't exist, 1965. But it stuck with me. On that day in 1965, at the University of Kentucky, 72 undergrad students showed up to take part in an experiment, a study. They'd been promised extra credit for their intro psych class. The researchers, Melvin Lerner and Carolyn Simmons, explained in their published findings that the students were split up into smaller groups of four to 10 and told that they'd be helping with a study on stress and performance. The researchers said basically, okay, look, Leaders in business and the military, they wanna hire workers who they believe can function really well, even in a super emotional or seriously stressful situation. Only problem is, we don't really know how to pick these people quickly, yet. And that's where you come in. One of our researchers, Dr. Stewart, will be running an individual through a learning task. And your job is to watch for cues on how that person is feeling. Dr. Stewart, they'd say, is running her subjects under three different conditions. Some subjects are rewarded money for correct answers, some subjects will receive nothing no matter their answer, and some subjects will receive an electric shock for each incorrect answer. And today, they'd be running the shock condition. Next, participants were shown a video screen with live footage of the room next door. The room was set up with a table and two chairs, one for Dr. Stewart and one for the research subject. Back in the main room, the undergrads were asked to watch and take notes on any emotional cues as their classmate did some memory tasks. And each incorrect answer was met, as promised, with an electric shock as the woman yelled and squirmed in pain. This went on for like 10 minutes until the experiment was paused and the participants were told that there'd be a short break before continuing for another 10 minutes. During this break, they were asked to rate the women they'd observed on a bunch of different things. The results that came back were clear these observers had a decidedly negative view of the woman they had all watched get shocked over and over again. Now, contrary to the belief of the participants, this data wasn't actually for military leaders or business executives, because the experiment was never looking at any of the things they had been told it was. Instead, the study was exploring a completely unexpected and to me, much more interesting question. How do we as humans come to terms with injustice? It had all been a ruse. The woman getting shocked, an actress. The live video feed, a 10-minute recording. And while the folks I told you about were informed that the shock experiment would continue after a brief break, not all groups were told this. In fact, experimenters told another group that they could choose to end the shock condition through a majority vote, which they did. And interestingly, these observers rated the women significantly more highly than those not given the opportunity to stop the shocks. According to The Guardian, Lerner and Simmons concluded that, quote, the sight of an innocent person suffering without possibility of reward or compensation, it motivated people to devalue the victim in order to bring about a more appropriate fit between her fate and her character. In simpler terms, we are so hardwired against accepting injustice that many of us would rather believe, well, she must have had it coming. But I wondered... How often does this really play out in the real world? And if it does, what does it look like? And today, we're exploring exactly that. Because this is the story of Joanne Little. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. Joanne Little was just 20 years old when she found herself locked up at the start of a 7-10 to year felony prison sentence at the Beaufort County Jail in Washington, North Carolina. It was August of 1974, and according to Danielle McGuire in her book At the Dark End of the Street, Joanne's cell was just 5 feet by 7 feet. The only woman caged at the jail at the time, Joanne spent all of her days in near-total solitary confinement. According to James Reston writing for The New York Times, Her cell had both a toilet and a shower, but the absence of a shower curtain and the surveillance camera pointed directly at her cell ensured that she was under constant watch. Joanne herself would say in a recorded interview with Reston that when she first arrived, she was given two sheets. And so, trying to get a little privacy, at least when showering, she hung one of the sheets across her cell's bars, blocking the camera's never-blinking eye. Her jailers responded by taking the sheet. The New York Times noted that the camera's live footage could be watched from the jailer's desks, but in the early hours of August 27, 1974, that same camera was inexplicably not working. And certainly if it had been, today's story may have been entirely different. But things happen how they happen. And so when Sergeant Jerry Helms entered the women's section of the jailhouse at 4:05 a.m. on August 27, 1974, all he knew for certain was that Clarence Alligood, the night jailer, was dead. And the lone female prisoner? Well, she was nowhere to be found. Joanne Little was on the run. But to really understand how Joanne got ensnared in events that would soon ignite a media firestorm, drawing in lawyers and reporters and activists and scientists and celebrities, we're going to need to back up and slow down. Washington, North Carolina sits just north of the Pamlico River. The town was often referred to by its nickname, Little Washington, unless, of course, you actually lived there. James Reston would write that residents preferred a name that gave more credit, the original Washington. But honestly, no matter the name you choose, Washington, North Carolina is undeniably little. In fact, its population of just over 9,000 hasn't changed much at all since Joanne was born. Despite its size, the town would be big news after a white jailer was found dead in the summer of 1974, because Washington was where Jesse Williams would give birth to her first child, a daughter, Joanne Little. According to James Reston, in the years that followed, Joanne became a big sister to four younger siblings. Eventually, though, her parents split and her father moved to New York City and picked up work as a security guard. Joanne's mother stayed in Washington and remarried the couple would have four more children together. It'd make Joanne the oldest of nine. But Joanne had bigger dreams than Washington, North Carolina could offer. Her mother would tell Reston that Joanne always wanted to be a city girl. And honestly, I wonder if the city would have suited Joanne better. You see, Washington, North Carolina wasn't exactly the most welcoming place for Black folks like Joanne and her family. Though the town was 28% Black Washington was rigidly segregated. James Reston would write in 1975 that, quote, Some of the old meanness is gone, to be sure, and the potential for overt racial violence is less. But when the issue is forced, the people here react in traditional ways. Race still predominates in eastern North Carolina. This is the Old South. Joanne herself would say in an interview with Reston that Washington was the type of place where Black folks never associated with white folks, unless, of course, they were working for them. And that also meant that for the majority of Joanne's childhood years, the schools in Beaufort County were fully segregated. But Joanne would say she didn't care too much. She liked to keep to herself, and she didn't really love school anyway. She'd even try dropping out at 15. It was a story that at the time was extremely common. In fact, according to U.S. census data, less than half of Black folks in the 1970s would complete high school. The result of centuries of systemic racism intended to bar Black folks from educational attainment. But really, that could be another episode entirely. What's important for you to know right now is that though Joanne would try to drop out, her attempt wasn't exactly successful. Joanne's mother, looking for some outside support, would ask the court system to declare Joanna truant and send her off to Dobbs Farms training school. But these court-mandated training schools, well, (laughs) their records aren't stellar. If you've listened to our second episode, The Botched Investigation of Samuel Little, then you already know that these facilities were known for cultures of abuse. That instead of correcting behavioral issues, they often intensified them. And according to historian Christina Green, writing for the University of Chicago Press, North Carolina ranked first in the nation for sending kids to schools like these. I'm not sure exactly how long Joanne spent at Dobbs, but when she was done, she'd stay with family up north and continue school there. Joanne was finally out of Washington. That is, until she got really sick. She had a thyroid condition and it ultimately forced her to return to North Carolina. But there was more bad news. When she came back her high school refused to accept her credits from up north, telling her she'd have to repeat the grade entirely. It'd be the final straw leading Joanne to drop out, this time for good. It was an upsetting turn of events, and not just because everyone deserves access to quality education, but also because Joanne was a seriously talented thinker and writer, one with plenty of determination to boot. But by now, Joanne wasn't exactly a kid anymore— Without traditional education, her options for what came next were limited. And while some would say that Joanne fell in with a bad crowd, historian Christina Green would write that Joanne felt she was doing what she needed to do. Joanne would herself say that, quote, brothers that live in the hood, they protect you. It was a thought process I could empathize with. When resources are limited, so too are your options. We all need certain needs met to survive, to be happy. And when folks find ways to survive, I think it's important to notice who we label as resourceful and who we label as criminal. But regardless of the details, according to Christina Green, Joanne, now in her late teens, started living with a man who ran the local pool hall, Julius Rogers. And police suspected that the two were involved in organizing a network of sex workers. It was one of several times the local police would be focused on Joanne. According to Green, Joanne would later say, quote, I was just a teenager out there doing stupid things. I didn't know anything. And while she'd say that some of the folks she'd hung out with were involved with sex work, it certainly wasn't some sinister plot. It was about making money, she said. I didn't. They did. But while Joanne was never arrested in relation to the so-called prostitution ring, she would be arrested for shoplifting several times in 1973 and 1974, though charges against her had to be dismissed almost every single time due to lack of evidence. But that didn't stop police officer Red Davis. According to Christina Green, Joanne would say that Davis threatened her after one of the drop cases saying, "I'm going to get you." Maybe he was gleeful when Joanne and her younger brother Jerome found themselves arrested and then charged with three felony counts of breaking and entering in 1974. According to Green, they'd been accused of breaking into motor homes and stealing $1,300 worth of property. They'd plead not guilty. But then, at trial, in a strange turn of events, Joanne's brother flipped and testified against her. Many folks felt skeptical of such a rapid change of heart. They thought Jerome had to have been offered a deal to turn, but his lawyer would deny those claims. And at this point, Joanne was in really hot water, and she must have been feeling the pressure. She'd make the decision to come clean, to confess. But it was too late. At only 19 years old, with zero previous felonies on her record, Joanne would be sentenced to two back-to-back seven-to-ten-year prison sentences. Jerome would walk with a misdemeanor plus probation. But because Joanne was still so young, she was eligible for what's called Committed Youth Offender Status, or CYO. It's a status which, according to historian Christina Green, was usually granted to folks under 21 convicted of nonviolent crimes. If given to Joanne... It would mean that she could leave prison at any time on parole if she demonstrated good behavior. The judge would ultimately decide not to grant Joanne CYO, opting instead to give her a much less lenient and much more controlling deal. He'd take off one of her two 7- to 10-year sentences if she agreed to have no further contact with her live-in boyfriend, Julius Rogers. Unless, of course, they were married, then he was cool with it but the deal also meant she wasn't allowed to even be in the area of his pool club. And if she violated these terms, well, she'd come right back to prison to serve out that second seven to 10 year prison sentence. But now, now it was time for her to serve her first sentence. And that is how Joanne Little ended up at the Beaufort County Jail in a five by seven foot cell. The very same cell where a jailer named Clarence Alligood would be found dead just a few months later. In the summer of 1974, 62-year-old Clarence Alligood was on his third career. According to journalist James Reston, Clarence worked as a farmer and then a truck driver before finally landing at Beaufort County Jail, where he worked as a night jailer. Unfortunately, Clarence Alligood was also a known racist. According to journalist James Reston, his own wife would say that, quote, he didn't really like coloreds that much. But that didn't stop him from being friendly to Beaufort County Jail's only female prisoner, Joanne Little. In the weeks that they got to know one another, Olligood would give Joanne special privileges, letting her use his office phone and even bringing her late night snacks. I'd wonder if at first Joanne had felt Clarence Oligood's kindness was a bright spot in a dark time. She couldn't even shower privately. At least she could count on Clarence to show her some humanity. But if Joanne ever felt that way, it would all come crashing down one night in late August. According to Danielle McGuire's book At the Dark End of the Street, Joanne would say that on that day, Clarence came to her cell with a silly grin on his face. He'd say that he had been nice to her and it was time she was nice to him. Joanne said later that she had a bad feeling about what he was alluding to. Unfortunately, she would end up being right. Clarence entered Joanne's cell that night with the intention of sexually assaulting Joanne, and that's exactly what he'd do. And at this point... I don't think it's necessary to go into all the details of exactly what Clarence Oliga did that night. So I'm only going to go over the pieces that are most important. And while I promise that these pieces will not be particularly detailed or graphic, I know this may be hard for some listeners to hear. And so if that's the case for you, I recommend fast forwarding about 30 seconds or so. According to court records, over the course of the assault, Clarence would verbally threaten Joanne, telling her there was no use yelling and that no one would believe her. And then Clarence, who is five inches taller and 100 pounds heavier than Joanne, pulled out an ice pick, using the sharp end to coerce Joanne into doing what he wanted. This goes on for a bit until Clarence accidentally drops the ice pick. And remarkably, Joanne, who is scared and desperate to get away, managed to get to it first. At this point, a fight between the two erupts and Joanne, trying to protect herself, would use the ice pick against Clarence, stabbing him several times, until he finally stopped advancing looking around at the scene joanne was terrified here was her jailer a white man slumped over gravely injured in her cell and here she was a prisoner a black woman the person who had stabbed him i had to wonder if his threats that no one would believe her had been ringing in her head but clarence hadn't been wrong who would believe her When Joanne made the decision to take Clarence's keys and run, she knew she was quite literally running for her life. When she made it out of the jail, it was dark. She ditched the jailer's keys under a tree and took off in the direction of the house where she used to live. When she got there, she saw a police car out front. And if it was even possible at this point to feel more terrified, I imagine she did. Diving into some nearby bushes, she had to make a new plan. And then it came to her. She'd go to see Pop. According to Danielle McGuire, Pop, whose real name was Ernest Barnes, was an elderly man whose house was well known in the community as the Liquor House. But Joanne had remembered him from her high school days. Her school sat across the street from Pop's, and oftentimes, walking to and from the school, she'd run into him as he spent a lot of time just sitting out on his front porch. They had talked, been friendly. She hoped he might be willing to help her now. According to Danielle McGuire back at the jail, it would be a man named Sergeant Helms who'd be the first to discover the scene. The news of what he'd found spread
1: quickly. In the early morning hours of August 27, 1974, the body of Clarence Oligood, Beaufort County, North Carolina's lone night jailer, was found in one of the jail cells. The 62-year-old white man had been stabbed 11 times with an ice pick he kept in a desk drawer. And overall,
0: the headlines they didn't fare well for Joanne. According to the Baltimore Sun, one outlet, the Washington Daily News, issued an editorial within hours of the body being discovered. They described Clarence Alligood as a public servant who died in the line of duty. And all of this? It started an all-out manhunt. They were determined to find Joanne Little no matter what it took. One article in the Asheville Citizen entitled Escapee is Sought in Slaying reported that a search with bloodhounds was underway in a city 20 miles away from Washington. James Resson would write that a local judge went and Joanne declared an outlaw under a rarely used statute which says that a fugitive can be shot by anyone on site. Meanwhile, Joanne Little was hiding out at Pop's house. Thankfully, he had agreed to take her in and help her come up with a plan, but just because she had a place to stay didn't mean Joanne was safe. Far from it. In fact, according to Danielle McGuire, the police would come by Pop's house to question him. They'd offered Pop $500 to tell them where Joanne was. He refused. He'd later say to Joanne that the money didn't mean that much to him. But saving her life? That did. Unbelievably, according to Danielle McGuire, the police would search Pop's home four separate times. Each time, Joanne would need to find a creative way to hide or escape on one occasion, the police had the whole house surrounded with no way to escape and no closets to easily hide in, and she slipped herself between two feather mattresses downstairs. When the cops made their way to the bed, they lifted the mattresses, even shining a flashlight to look underneath them. But they never pulled them apart. And so Joanne, who stood at five foot three and weighed a mere 110 pounds, according to James Reston, managed to avoid detection. But... Things took a turn for the worse when one of the officers decided to sit down on the mattress to talk with Pop. Joanne, who could now barely breathe, had to stay as still as possible, hoping and praying that she wouldn't be found. And incredibly, she wasn't. They left. Joanne had once again very narrowly escaped. And then, finally, after six long days of evading capture... Joanne, at last, had a plan to escape. The scheme had unfolded in the dead of night. At 2 a.m., Pop got a visitor, a woman named Marjorie Wrighton. Marjorie wasn't alone, either. She came into the house with another woman, a companion who wore a wig. With the visitors inside, Joanne took the wig and put it on, then left the house with Marjorie, leaving the original companion behind in her place. But Marjorie would tell journalist James Reston that, as they left the house, they noticed something, just up the street. Here's Marjorie herself, in audio we obtained from the University of Chapel Hill, Wilson Library's Southern Historical Collection.
1: And then I looked up the street and I see this car coming. And it was a police car and had the lights off.
0: So then there's a great big, you know, grown, one of them evergreen bushes like you got. It was a great big one of those there. And I threw her back behind that evergreen bush. And I kind of squirmed. So, you know, I stooped down myself, and that's the only thing that saved us. But after he passed, then I opened the door, and then I went back and got her. Carrying the weight of nearly a week in hiding, having survived close call after close call with the cops, Joanne followed Marjorie to the car waiting out front, and the two drove away, safe for now. Getting out of Washington, North Carolina, didn't mean that the target on Joanne's back would magically disappear. The police were after her, so she had to move carefully. Heading about two hours west to Chapel Hill, she was able to meet up with a white lawyer known for defending Black folks in court. And then, on September 4th, accompanied by her new attorney, Joanne would turn herself in to the State Bureau of Investigation. And
1: word spread fast. At first, the incident appeared to be a simple case of murder and escape by a Black woman prisoner, the lone occupant of the women's section, serving time for breaking and entering. Within days, another surprise. The missing woman, 20-year-old Joanne Little, pleading self-defense, gave herself up to authorities. The case has become a cause among women's and civil rights groups, which are raising allegations about what goes on in small-town jails and what rights women have to defend themselves against sexual attack.
0: But once Joanne turned herself in, despite her explanation that she had acted in self-defense, that Clarence Alligood had sexually assaulted her, and despite the medical examiner's report, which seemed to corroborate Joanne's story, Joanne was almost immediately indicted for first-degree murder, a charge with a mandatory punishment for anyone convicted of it at the time. Death via gas chamber. And if that's shocking to you like it was to me, it's also important to know that at the time, according to Christina Green... North Carolina led the nation with the highest number of prisoners on death row. And unsurprisingly, 68% of them were Black. It didn't look good for Joanne. She had thus far managed to survive Clarence's attack and again managed to avoid being killed in the manhunt to find her, but now she faced the biggest risk in her life yet. But Joanne's case, it was national news, and everyone seemed to have their own opinion on Joanne's guilt or innocence and what she deserved. In fact, many white folks just didn't buy Joanne's story at all. They felt Joanne had purposely lured in Clarence Allagood that night, intending all along to murder him and make her escape. Other white folks believed Joanne's story, but they felt that what Allagood did really wasn't that big of a deal. Hardy Henry, a businessman from Washington, told James Reston that, quote, I'll tell you one thing. She wasn't defending her honor in that cell. She'd lost that years ago. Rumors swirled that Joanne was an easy woman with loose morals. But others would rally behind Joanne, seeing her case as the perfect intersection between issues of civil rights, women's rights, and prisoners' rights. Here's one activist speaking to a local news crew.
1: Well, I think that this is one of the most significant cases
0: concerning any black person in the past 30 or 40 years in the history of the United States. Uh, we feel it's so important because it goes to the very heart of the question as to whether or not a black woman has the right to defend herself when she's the victim of a white, racist, uh, sexist attack. And we feel joy and little acted in self-defense, and we feel that the way this question is answered will have tremendous repercussions throughout this country in regards
1: to the life that black women are able to live.
0: According to James Reston, the Women's Legal Defense Fund, the Feminist Alliance Against Rape, the Rape Crisis Center, the National Black Feminist Organization and the National Organization of Women all joined together in fundraising to support Joanne's defense. And the Southern Poverty Law Center would spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to launch a mail campaign. The campaign would solicit donations by sending out two million letters all across the country. According to Ashley Farmer, writing for Black Perspectives, nationally recognized activists Angela Davis and Rosa Parks spoke up and organized on behalf of Joanne's case. But James Reston would write that one civil rights organizer, Golden Franks, was really responsible for kicking off the Joanne Little movement. And his work was no coincidence. Franks, who had vast experience in organizing for civil rights, knew that Joanne's story had the potential to compel folks into action. Taking notes from strategies used during the 1960s, Frank would go from church to church, saying, quote, God has chosen this girl with all of her little shortcomings to be the savior of black women who are incarcerated. Joanne would tell James Reston that she'd started receiving boxes packed tight with letters from supporters. She tried to respond to all of them, but she'd quickly realized she couldn't. With all eyes on Joanne, she'd even finally have the chance to try to explain her side of the story to share what she'd been through and why she made the choices she did. Here's Joanne herself speaking with CBS about how she'd felt the night she made her escape from jail. I just didn't know what what to do. I was so frightened I didn't know what to do. So, um, I can't even explain how I felt. You know, because it's, it's, even now, it's unexplainable. You know, you, you wouldn't even be able to understand it, you know, until you are in my position.
1: And the matter of running away from the jail came from what kind of feelings within you?
0: Um, knowing that, I just can't explain it. Knowing the people there and how they are, there's no way of telling how they would have reacted. There's no way of telling whether I would have even been able to be sitting here now telling you what, you know, what happened. There's no way of even telling you whether I would have even been able to get a trial whether she wanted it or not Joanne Little had become an icon for civil rights, for women's rights for prisoners' rights it was a role she had never signed up for and it was one that came with a lot of pressure but Joanne had no choice the movement had chosen her and what came next is what the Chicago Tribune would call the trial of the decade and it's one I want to tell you all about next week I felt like Joanne Little's story was too big and too important to fit it all in one episode. So next Tuesday, we'll pick up where we left off. But until then, I want to leave you with some action items related to today's episode. First, I want to direct you to the Chicago-based national nonprofit, A Long Walk Home. This organization advocates for racial and gender equity in schools, communities, and our country at large by empowering young artists and activists to end violence against all girls and women. They use a Black feminist justice approach and work with artists, students, activists, therapists, and community organizations and cultural institutions to elevate marginalized voices, facilitate healing, and activate social change. You can learn more and donate to support their work at alongwalkhome.org. I'd also like to put special emphasis on a few sources that were central to the creation of today's episode. First, the book, At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape, and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power by Danielle L. Maguire. This book contains an excellent compilation of the historical facts of Joanne Little's case, while placing her story within the context of how rape and anti-rape activism shaped the larger movements for civil rights and black power. And finally, I'd like to highlight the work of James Reston Jr., including an article he wrote for The New York Times called The Joanne Little Case. Reston also conducted a number of interviews with people about the case, including with Joanne Little herself. James Reston Jr.'s work was critical in capturing the impact of Joanne Little's case at the time it was happening, and I'm so grateful to have had access to his work while researching and writing this story. Much of the audio used in today's episode is from the James Reston Jr. collection of the Joanne Little Trial Materials 1975-1976, through collection number 04006. We'd like to give special thanks to the Southern Historical Society and Wilson Library at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for allowing us to use the material from their collection. You can learn more about the Southern Historical Collection, including ways to support their work at library.unc.edu forward slash Wilson forward slash SHC. As always, you can find a full list of the sources used for today's episode on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. You can support the show by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash truercrimepod. And finally, you can keep up with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at truercrimepod.